fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, today we lit the candle of love, uh, though the modern tradition, of course, as I've mentioned before, is, well, it's a little inconsistent sometimes. The uh, angel's candle has been uh, construed to signify peace, although uh, the bulletin publishing companies are sort of standardizing it as love, which is helpful. As I've mentioned before, uh, the medieval theme uh, they focused on four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So according to the medieval uh, tradition, uh, today would have been um, the day to think about uh, final judgment <coughs> and hell. They didn't light a candle for it. By the way, did you know that uh, the uh, advent wreath, where we light candles, uh, was most likely invented by Protestants, by uh, German Lutherans, and only later adopted by uh, the Roman Catholic Church? So if you think of... Lighting candles is a little Catholic. Um, well, maybe so are Lutherans, I guess. I don't know, but I'm not sure if my point is. Uh, love, love, love is the point. Love is the theme for today. Uh, after my rambling, love is a popular theme. Uh, people seem to agree mostly that uh, love is a good thing, a splendor thing, lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. And yet, love, sweet love, is also reported to be the only thing that there's just. Too little of. It's interesting that humans generally agree that love is the most important thing, but humans also generally agree that humans generally fail when it comes to that most important thing. Uh, this isn't really surprising. I think it was a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr who observed that original sin is the most empirical of Christian doctrines, meaning the most easy to prove just by looking at the world and seeing it. And simple, but how did we ever get it into our heads that things could be any different? Or if we know that the world needs love but doesn't have it, where might it come from? Well, in 1 John 4 7 through 19, St. John the Beloved, disciple whom Jesus loved, writes to Christians who he calls in verse 7 beloved, and he writes to them this commandment. To love one another. <coughs> My outline for this sermon, by the way, if you're taking notes, we will first look at what love's got to do with it. Then we will consider love actualized. And then we will consider that love is a fertile field. So first of all, what does love have to do with it? Why is love so vital to the Christian life? Because it's not just the sappy songs on the radio that is fun to quote. It's the pages of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles extol the excellence of love, the importance of love for the churches that they write to. Why is this the new command that Jesus gave to his disciples, love one another as I love you? Why does Paul say that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but faith working through love? And why does John, at the time the last living apostle in his letters, so emphasize the importance of love in the life of the church? What does love have to do with it? Well, here's why. As it tells us, love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, context matters, of course, right? Uh, we need to be careful not to take this out of context and read it to mean that love, however you happen to understand it, is the sole and sufficient test of whether someone knows God. 
Everyone, in a sense, loves something. Sinners love sin. Idolaters love idols. The Bible talks this way. Not only do we love wicked things, but even our love of good things becomes wicked when it eclipses our love for God, when we give to things God has given, the love that is really owed only to the giver of those gifts. We could call this disordered love with the uh, 4th century, I believe, Bishop Augustine of Hippo, or if you prefer, you could call it tainted love, the British synth-pop duo Soft Cells, circa 1981. Obviously, these aren't the kinds of love that John has in mind. Scholars tell us that John was more of a Duran Duran fan. <laughs> but verse 7 makes clear, I don't know why I put that in there, but verse 7 makes it clear what kind of love uh, or God means, or John means, uh, here as he's writing this. It is love for one another, love for the church. John sees this love as an outworking of love for God. If you look at the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Love God, you'll love his children. This is really Christian Ethics 101, isn't it? The two great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. And this doesn't necessarily exclude love for outsiders, those outside the church. First Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for everyone. It's not that we don't need to love those outside the church, but uh, this starts with love for one another inside the church because of reasons, which we'll get to later. The point for now is that love for God and God's people is the fruit of new birth, the fruit of a restored relationship with God. And by contrast, in verse 8, you ain't nothing without love. And the reason for that is that God is love. That is a powerful statement, isn't it? It's beyond just God is loving. Love is intrinsic to who God is, the eternal character of God. God has always had and will always have a heart of love. <coughs> if you are um, of a certain uh, theological temperament, uh, you might... I uh, think we need to balance that with God's wrath, but it's not an exact balance. Wrath is not exactly the same as love. Here's D.A. Carson. God's holiness, God's sovereignty, God's love, and the other attributes that are part of his eternal being are always in play. God's wrath is a function of these attributes when faced with our sin. So we can't use God as love as an excuse to write God's wrath out of the Bible. But we also recognize love and wrath are not exactly the same. It's not totally symmetrical as if we just keep them in balance. Wrath is not contrary to God's character, but as a response to sin that is in keeping with that character. God has been and always shall be love. Is part of who the Creator is. Love exists wherever it exists as a reflection of the nature and character of God. Human love became disordered when we turned from our Creator and rebelled against His characters. We looked at Him and saying, I feel I've got to run away, I've got to get away. The result is our love is tainted love. 
To love rightly, we must be born of God, made new, our loves reordered by the Holy Spirit and the Word of Christ, so that we know God through His Son. So, by way of an application here at this point, if we do not love, if a church is not marked by love, does not love one another, what does that mean? It means the salt has lost its saltiness, right? Love has everything to do with being a church. If we fail to, one another, to love one another, it calls into question whether we know God at all. And that's why the New Testament emphasizes love within the church, not because loving outsiders is optional, but because our witness to them is compromised if they see that we don't even love one another. It starts here. So the stakes are high. Love is pretty important for the life of the church. However, John immediately is clear that the church is not the source of love entering into the world, but a demonstration, an outworking of God's love which he sent into the world. It doesn't start with or ultimately depend on us. It starts with and depends on God. You see, this is where I'm on to the point here about love actualized, love actually entering into the world. We see love revealed in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. This is what we celebrate a week from today, right in Christmas. The definitive revelation of God's love is not the church, but the Christ. On the first Christmas, God showed the world his love, he sent his Son to bring us life. This is not merely love explained or love taught, but love demonstrated. This is why I'm saying love actualized. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't call down God's love. We couldn't have done that. And even if we could have, we wouldn't have. God sent love to us. The eternally beloved Son of God was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Love was born. That is how real love entered into our broken wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is how the love of God transforms our broken hearts, stripped and beaten and nailed to a broken cross. As the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, for our failure to love God and neighbor. This is the act of love that the world was looking for. What the world needs and what the world chronically has just too little of. God is, and God freely gave when he sent his Son into the world. God himself is love, and so to give us love, he gave us himself. Ultimately, the hope of the world is not the love of the church, but the love of God in Christ. And so our love for one another, it is a fitting response to God's love for us. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. How do we respond to the great love that God has shown us in Christ, this overwhelming outpouring of undeserved mercy and, and grace? 
Simply because he so loved the world, how do we respond to that? We love one another as he loved us. More than that, our love is God's presence at work in us. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. So if we love, God abides in us, and God's love is perfected in us. What does that mean? I don't think that means that our love somehow makes God come to abide in us. As if we have some power by loving each other to, to make God do anything. Or as if the Spirit's going to leave if we just stop loving each other. The Father has already sent his Son Verse 13, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. He's already given us his spirit. Verse 13. But if we love each other, I think it's the other way around. It's because God abides in us through his spirit. The invisible presence of the risen and ascended Christ with his church through his spirit it becomes visible in our love for one another. So it's because he abides in us. And then we can know if we love one another. It's how we look at our church and know that the Spirit is present. God is abiding in us because we love one another. Again, this is why the New Testament emphasizes love within the church specifically. This is what knits us together as the body of Christ, as the temple in whom he is dwelling. And our love for one another is his continued work. Not only he abides in us, but his love is, is perfected in us. That's a, they call it passive tense. doesn't grammatically indicate who is doing the perfecting. Who is perfecting his love? I don't, again, I don't think it's us. I think it's God. God perfecting his own love in us. To perfect something in this sense means... To complete something, to bring it to its intended, ultimate goal. So the love of God already given to us in Christ is still working on us, working in us toward this goal. So the ultimate goal of God's love, given starting on that first Christmas, is not just restoring your personal relationship with God. God's love expands beyond that, continues to work toward restored relationships among people, and that begins with the church, with those who have experienced that right relationship with God, the love of God. It flows out into love for one another. This is the beginning of restored humanity to what we were meant to be, one family united in God. You might ask, well, if it's God's work, why are we commanded to do it? It's just his work that he does in us. Well, because that's partly how God does his work, through the instruction of his word. It takes instruction. It's not automatic. It doesn't happen bypassing your knowledge. It doesn't happen without your effort. Even as the Spirit transforms our hearts through the gospel, stirring up affection for one another, we still find that we need to be instructed and reminded to express that love for one another in action. And we even need to be reminded to keep our hearts focused on God's love for us and to stir up through the gospel and through the word of God, love for God and love for one another. We need reminders, we need instruction 
That's how human beings work. Still, it's significant that at this point in John's instruction, after he placed so much weight on our actions, he kind of gives a sidebar on assurance here. In verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. So, as a sidebar on assurance, we could spend a long time on sidebar. Assurance is something that many Christians really wrestle with, and here we see there is a supernatural element to it. It is, in a sense, a gift that God gives through His Spirit. It's not entirely uh, something that is objective. It is supernatural. And yet, at the same time, if you take John's letter as a whole, he does invite us to consider fruit in our lives, the evidence of faith and love and obedience. Still, at the end of the day, that's just something that the Spirit uses to, to give us this assurance. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The we is, is John and the other apostles, eyewitnesses to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It points to eyewitness testimony and again points us to what God alone has done for us. Verse 15 almost the opposite side of the coin here from verse 13 reminded us that it is a gift of the Spirit. But verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So simple confession. Jesus is the Son of God. Not mere assent like even the demons who believe and tremble, but trust in the Son of God is the Savior of the world, this is enough for you to know that God abides in you and you in God. And so, you see in verse 16, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in Him, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, whoever abides in Him, whoever abides in love, to God, God abides in him. There's a lot of abiding going Confessing Christ, abiding in God, abiding in love, it, it all comes together. And so this you see you start to see the connection in John's thinking between faith and love, because the gospel message, Jesus is the Son of God sent into the world. This is the revelation of God's love for us, and so to believe. Gospel is to believe the love God has for us, is to abide in the love of God. And that's the way the gospel comes to reshape our love through the gospel. We have confidence in God's love for us, so God's love begins to work within us. Again, we still need instruction to be told to love one another, but we are unable to obey that instruction apart from faith by which we simply receive and rest in the love that God has for us. Assurance that we are fully known and fully loved by God. So as He is at work in us, His love begins to bear fruit. We've already mentioned some of the fruit. As I said, love is a fertile field. Fruit number one, simply the fact that the invisible character of God is made visible. Back in verse 12, no one has seen God, but when we love one another, God abides in us. 
It's a line from a musical. To love another person is to see the face of God. There's some truth in that. We, we will never love one another perfectly, will we? The great hope for the world is God's love, not the church's. Yet still, our love for one another testifies to the character and reality of God's love for us in Christ. When we love as we have been loved, love is freely given, love is patient and kind, not arrogant or rude, not irritable or resentful, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When that is the kind of love that we have in the church, the love of God for us is on display. And it testifies to the truth of the gospel of God's love. We've already hinted at as well, though. Uh, our love, the love of God at work in us, is linked to assurance of salvation. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In the first place, it's God's love that casts out the fear. It says perfect love casts out fear. That's not our love. That's God's love. His love for us casts out our fear. Yet the more that we grow in love for one another, the more we grow in our confidence in God's perfect love for us. And I think point to my experience uh, bears this out, the deeper I am involved in Christian fellowship, uh, loving relationships with other believers, the less struggle I will have with assurance of salvation in my own life. This is the way that we are designed to work as believers, to be tied together to one another in love, in church, is part of how we grow in, in assurance and our own understanding of God's love for us. This is why the idea of church hurt is such a tragedy. People are hurt by churches and do struggle to trust Christian community again. That hurt is a wound that keeps on wounding because it makes it difficult for people to return to the place God designed for us to, to grow in His own love. <laughs> what does it look like then to, to be the church, to be a church where we genuinely love one another? Well, it's genuine affection that works itself out into action. It is not merely warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, some people might come off as this very warm and caring but are actually manipulative and selfish. Other people might not come off as warm at all, but their love is deep and you see it and the things that they do for people. But it's not just dutiful action and not just warm feelings. These are just some qualifications here. We're not all the same, right? We have different personalities, different natural ways of showing affection to one another. In my love language is, is personal space, right? Um, so, if you want to show me love, just go away. No, I'm best one. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but we're not all the same. We have different spiritual gifts. 
But however God has gifted, gifted us, however he has built us, using those gifts, not for our own benefit, but for the sake of others, in willingness to serve one another, understanding that we all have a calling to love one another. And that's what's summed up in verse 19, final verse here. We love because he first loved us. There are two parts to that that we can't really do without either one, right? We can't simply focus on our love and say it's just about loving each other apart from understanding how God first loved us in Christ. But we also can't say, well, just look, look at how God loved us in Christ and cut out any outflow or outworking or implications of that and our love for one another. We need both of those things for to have either of them. Fully love one another as we were meant to, unless we first understand how God loved us. That's what sets us free to love one another as He loved us. There's two important things that need to be said. Love is not optional. The church displays lack of love, whether apathy or quarreling or abuse of leadership calls into question whether we even know the love of God for us. And yet, at the same time, we understand that we simply don't have that love apart from knowing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love that He gave us freely on the cross. So, I just want to close with this thought that it's an amazing thought to think of this that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, He abides in us, His love is perfected in us. As it says in verse 17 there, as he is, so also are we in this world. That by loving one another, we are called to, to use the cliche, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be the body of Christ, to display his love to the world, to say this is how God loved us, so this is how we are going to love one another in all the ways, great and small, that we simply show love to one another. We make the gospel visible. What a great privilege that is. May God give us grace to be a powerful display among us. Let's go to him now. Father, we thank you for great love with which you have loved us, this everlasting love, love that is so undeserved, because we do confess that we have failed to love you with our whole heart and soul and strength, and we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have loved things that you have given us more than we have loved the giver. And yet, your love for us is not based on anything that we have done to deserve it or to earn it. Your love for us is simply based on the fact that you are love. And so you showed your love by sending your son to be born, to live, to suffer and die to rise again, to show us not only how to love one another, 
to actually love us. We thank you for this grace and this love that you have given us. And we ask that you would you give us grace to believe it, to understand and know, to simply receive the love that you have for us, to stop trying to earn it, but to simply be still and know that you are God. God is love, and to receive the love that is ours. So we come to you, faith, faith alone, trusting in your grace alone and the love that you have given us in Christ, in Christ alone. And then from that great assurance, set our hearts free then to overflow with love for one another and for all. Put your love on display among us. Those who come here might know that there's something different and come to know the love of the Savior for sinners. We ask these things in Christ's name.